This week on the Vergecast, Dan Seifert joins us to talk about the 13-inch MacBook Pro review, what's going on with the Pixel, and a little bit about what's going on with Windows laptops, which are very interesting now. Casey Newton joins us to talk about Facebook's oversight board, its big moderation plan, and then Julia Alexander joins us to talk about the streaming wars. That's the Vergecast coming up now. Support for the show comes from Kohler. Smart lights, smart refrigerators, smart locks. The list of smart gadgets meant to make life more convenient grows longer and longer every day. But what about smart things that are also beautiful things? Luxurious, even. Meet the Numi 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet yet. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Make your bathroom the smartest, cleanest, and most comfortable room in your home with Kohler. Learn more at Kohler.com. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of small but struggling phone divisions. See? It's good. It's a little little preface of what's to come. I'm your friend, Neil. Dieter Bone is here. I'm your mortal enemy. That's good. See, what you want is conflict <laughs> in a show. Uh, we're going to have three three guests today. Dan Seifert is here. Hey, Dan. Hello. A little bit later, Casey Newton's going to join us to talk about Facebook's oversight board. And then the last segment of the show, Julia Alexander is going to be here. We got to talk about what's going on in the streaming wars and what is up with Quibi. But Dan, you're here. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about some phone stuff, some review stuff. I want to give a quick update on the virus before we jump into it. I'm just going to tell you, it's been nine weeks since Trump held up a flow chart. Are you familiar with this tradition, Dan? Yep. Yep. I, there was going to be a website. 45 million Google engineers are building it. <laughs> Uh, the entire population of Europe is working on this website. <laughs> Anyhow, there was supposed to be a website. It's been nine weeks since that website was promised. It's still not here. In order to move forward, I assure you what America needs is a robust testing and tracing infrastructure. We do not have such an infrastructure. It has been nine weeks since the first step was announced. That's that. Here's some other virus coverage from The Verge. Zoe Schiffer wrote a great piece about the doomsday bunker market, which is thriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, the piece is centered around a company called Vivo. They run a facility called X Point in South Dakota. I encourage you to visit the Vivo website and check out the X Point marketing materials. It, there's like a Vimeo video. It's like, be prepared. And then you press it. It's just like waves of scary things with dots on a map that could happen. It's like nuclear catastrophe. One of them, uh, by the way, is immigration invasion. For, it's like crazy. It's a crazy company. The business is booming. They're selling these bunkers. Just look at the photos of the bunkers. They're they're tin cans of dirt on them. Like I don't. Anyway, read it. It's great. It's super funny uh, and very poignant in terms of what people are afraid of. Amazon has asked Congress to pass a law against price gouging, which is pretty funny. So that's great. Except that the real purpose of Amazon's proposed legislation is that uh, the party that sets the price would be held liable, not the quote-unquote storefront that hosts the seller, which, you know... Uh, Yeah, so if you read Amazon's blog post about it, they kind of make a point where they're kicking off sellers all the time and they just want somebody to, like, pursue, like, legal ramifications against these sellers. I think that's what their goal is. But, yeah, it's kind of funny that they should just also manage their marketplace. I mean, uh, look, the the big company asking for the regulation usually is for a reason. It's usually to help cement the big company's power. 
That's a, that's like just a pattern we've seen over and over again. I think in this case, Amazon also just needs the force of a law so that it can make its own rule. Because mm-hmm. right now they're making up whatever price gouging means and that opens them up to criticism. It's like, here's the law. Anyway, it's happening. Uber detailed its response uh, to COVID-19. Uh, they're going to require face masks in for all drivers and everybody else in the car. They're also doing fewer people in the car. Also, the driver app, before they accept a ride, they have to take a selfie to show that they're wearing a mask and they're doing wow. image recognition. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, Bijan wrote about the numbers for live streaming platforms. They're all just up. So this is like Twitch. This is Facebook gaming. This is YouTube gaming. Uh, they are just exploding. It's super interesting. Valorant drove 334 million hours watched on Twitch in April. Uh, a game called Just Chatting drove 134 million hours in April. That's bigger than both League of Legends and Fortnite. Fortnite has been growing since January, which, you know, there's just like meme that Fortnite is dying, but it just keeps growing. It keeps becoming the biggest thing in the world. And then Facebook gaming is up 72% between March and April, uh, 238% year over year. YouTube gaming not growing quite as fast, um, only 65% year over year. But you see what's happening is just like the amount of influx into into these live streaming platforms is huge. It is going to be a big story. Bishan's all over it. I've got two Tesla items here. I feel like next week, we're just going to have Liz on next week to talk about, and we'll probably have Sean too, because he's been breaking story after story about what's going on with Tesla and its factories. Tesla reopened its Fremont factory. They reopened the Giga factory in Nevada. Those are both stories that uh, Sean O'Kane broke on The Verge. They they were not out. Sean got them. Congratulations to Sean. Uh, some good work there. Elon tweeted, if you're going to arrest someone, arrest me. Trump is tweeting about Elon. It's just nuts. It, the whole situation's nuts. Elon, I don't think, is acting very responsibly. Elon, uh, by the way, James Vincent tweeted out a CNBC story about AI today. James Vincent is our, our AI reporter. He tweeted a CNBC re- uh, story about Elon's relationship to the AI community and pointed out everybody in that story was off the record or on background, like didn't want to be named because they don't want to disturb the relationship. With Elon, or they just don't want to like be disturbed by Elon. <laughs> yeah, or they, whatever. <laughs> so James, sometimes you just want your mentions to be chill. Yeah. So James tweets a story and says it's notable that the Elon community. I think we can call them the Elon community. The Elon mm-hmm. community is so vitriolic that people don't want to be named. Facebook's head of AI research replied to that and said, "I'll be named." Elon doesn't have good ideas about AI. There's no such thing as artificial general intelligence. And then Elon responded to that tweet by just saying Facebook sucks. <laughs> So it's just been a weird week of Elon stuff for us. Uh, This week in Elon is back. That's Liz's newsletter. You know, it comes and goes in periods of Elon activity. It's fair to say that we're in a period of high Elon activity. So this week in Elon is back. We'll have Liz and Sean on next week to check in on all things Elon. Twitter is introducing new labels for tweets with misleading COVID-19 information. Uh, And Google, following Twitter's lead, is saying the majority of its employees work from home until 2021. Twitter just said everybody can work from home forever. That's just Twitter's policy now. So just a lot of virus stuff in the world. A lot of what I keep calling second order effects of the pandemic. You see them continue to play out. We're all over it. Check it out on the site. But now we got to talk about cell phones and laptops because honestly, what are we here for? Dan. Yep. A lot of reviews going on this week. Let's start with laptops. It's busy like past week or two of news and reviews. And I know you guys talked a bunch about the surface stuff last week. Um, Obviously those reviews are starting to hit. We had the MacBook review hit just a, a really busy couple of weeks on this front, which is just came out of nowhere. Yeah. So Dieter reviewed the MacBook Pro 13 this week. Mm-hmm. We put out our our best laptop you can buy guide from Monaco, which is great. I would note that we 
that it was the XPS 13. That's because people who are trying to decide between laptops are usually deciding between Windows laptops. Yeah. Like if you're deciding between Mac and Windows, when you're like in the market for a laptop, like you got to start, you just got to rewind <laughs> and like really assess where your decisions are. Like I will say there is, you know, just below the XPS 13, there's the, the choice for if you're shopping for a Mac laptop, you know, we think the MacBook Air is probably the best option for most people at this point. Um, unless if you, if you know you need a pro or like Dieter said in the past, if you think you need a pro, just <laughs> get the pro because you're probably going to regret not getting the pro. So Dan, actually... I agree the XPS is probably the right thing for most people that are like comparison shopping stuff. With the Pro, like <sighs> there's the base Pro and then there's the real Pro on the 13-inch, mm-hmm. right? And then there's the Air. And uh, the number of people that have come at me uh, saying, I don't know between the Air, the base Pro, the real Pro, what should I do, is off the charts. Like somehow Apple has completely just duffed the differentiation between these three yeah. products and no one really knows where they should land. Like we had to set up a custom Slack room for Casey Newton to work him emotionally through the process of which of these MacBooks he should get. It was a lot. And I still think he hasn't actually pulled the trigger yet. Here's Okay, I'm going to throw this out there. You two have done the rigorous work. Here's just some crap I thought of. <laughs> the MacBook Air is a Chromebook, the, right? It's just a mm. fancy, expensive Chromebook. The fake Pro is the one that the people who want an air should buy. And the real pro is the one that uh, won't overheat the second you try to do more than one thing at once. I think, I think you got that all wrong. Okay. Well, I mean, I said it was some crap. I just thought of <laughs> to be fair to myself. What do you, what do you think? So the calling the air Chromebook is mean, uh, but not totally wrong. Although if you try and run, uh, it is run super hard on Chrome, you might have problems. You should probably stick with Safari if you can, but it is the best Mac for most people. It will, um, not do you wrong, unless you try and do stuff that will push it for an extended period of time. If you need your computer to like do a ton of stuff for more than a half an hour, you know, you need to export some video, you need to do extended photo work, you can't bring yourself to close and bring yourself down fewer than 50 Chrome tabs, whatever, uh, then you need to go pro because it has a higher thermal ceiling. Like that's the main, and it has slightly better graphics. So that's the different differentiation there. The hassle comes from, do you want the base pro, which is like a MacBook Air that isn't thermally throttled, or do you want the step up pro with the 10th gen Intel processors, which actually has like modern 2020 specs. And I'm a little bit, like Dave Lee did a good video saying like, this is the difference and it's mostly about graphics and don't be so mad at the base MacBook pro. And he's not wrong, but like when I like step back and look at it from, you know, 10,000 feet, uh, cause you know, I can walk, walk on air, walk on the clouds. Uh, I am actually a little bit baffled. I actually, if I'm Apple, I discontinue the base MacBook pro. I don't get it. Yeah. I got to assume that Apple has some sort of market research here saying that a lot of people buy that price bracket of like 1300 to $1,600 MacBook pros. Right. And that's like the only, the only reason I can, I can think of for that to exist in that they like, for whatever reason, don't want the MacBook Air, whether they feel like they are too pro for it or just need more power. And then the, the that is like they don't want to spend 1800 plus bucks. But that's the only explanation I can possibly think about. You know what I think it is? I think that Apple knows that there is a huge groundswell of demand for an affordable laptop that has a touch bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's horrible. That was just a troll. Dieter's at Backlon. You can tweet at him. But this brings me to the, 
right. Dell put out new XPS 17 and XPS 15. Super interesting computers. Right. Alienware, which is part of Dell, put out a new Area 51M. Like the the Windows laptop spec and design level is just higher than ever. And Apple is just flat. Touch bar aside, Apple is just flat. So, Dan, I just was curious, why did we pick the XPS 13 over every other Windows laptop? And then just sort of like broadly, it seems like Apple's at stasis, even though they've made all these changes recently. And the Windows design side is just like taken off. Yeah, I mean, I think the XPS 13 is a good pick because there's really no compromise with it. Aside from like a really terrible webcam, which frankly, there's no good webcams. This is just like kind of worse than some others. Uh, you get great battery life, you get great performance, you get a good keyboard, you get a reliable trackpad, you get a great display. It's really compact and small. It's got enough ports on it to live with. They give you an adapter to use your USB-A stuff in the box. And you can get like a really well-spec one for like 1300 bucks. So like if you want the same spec level as that $1,800 Mac Pro in a Windows computer, you're paying 1300 bucks for it. And like that's not cheap still expensive, still premium or whatever. But if you look at like the Surface Laptop 3, which is similarly priced, similarly specs, you give up things like port selections. You lose Thunderbolt and you lose some other things. It's a little bit bigger of a design. It's not as like compact and, and portable as the XPS 13. The HPs in that price range like have 16 by 9 screens. They're more trying to get you to do a two-in-one thing when really all you want is a laptop. But, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just like Dell did a really good job of like making a laptop that doesn't really make you compromise. You're going to pay premium price for it. You're not going to pay the most for it. Like you will pay more for other options, but you're, st- and you still can be confident that this is going to be a good thing. That's going to last you, you know, the four or five years that you might want to get out of it. But yeah, like there's so much happening in windows laptops that, and, and Apple's been using the same designs for four years now. There definitely feels like they're due for refresh um, on the design front. But uh, and I think Dieter said this as well in the past that like Apple doesn't have like that hardware design lead that it used to have. Like the XPS 13 is sleek AF and so are the XPS 15 and the new XPS 17, which is super interesting computer that he brought back after 10 years. Uh, Like they are toe to toe in design and hardware capabilities in in, and like looks and fit and finish with Apple. Uh, So Apple still has Mac OS. Uh, in certain applications, it definitely has performance advantage. If you are a heavy video editor, I'd still probably encourage you to look at a, a MacBook Pro, certainly the 16-inch. But like for day-to-day work, you are compromising less and less on the Windows side of things now. The thing that strikes me is the Windows battery life on sort of a normal workload, including Chrome, it just seems to be getting better and Apple seems to be getting worse. And I don't understand that split at all. Yeah, me either. You know, uh, a couple years ago, there was the uh, transition from dual core to quad core processors in a lot of these like ultrabook level things. We saw a noticeable battery dive on there. Like I was testing laptops before that on dual core processors. We saw 10, 12 hours of use, like more than more than one laptop could do that. And then all of a sudden it nosedived to like six, seven hours. And that was like everything was like the best I could get out of it for a real workload was like seven hours. And then like... If you read uh, Dieter's most recent review of the MacBook Pro 13, like in a real workload where he's not babying the battery and he's using the applications he wants to use in his workflow, he's looking at like four and a half, five hours. Like yep. that's how I felt about the air. That's bad. Yeah. Like that. Like I don't know what Apple is doing that's different, but it's definitely 
feels like like you remember like when MacBook Airs switched to I think it was Haswell processors and they went to like twelve hours of battery life. Yep. Yeah. It was huge. Like everybody was stoked for it, and then they just kind of like chipped away at that and gone down. Yeah, I mean, I think the did you see there are reports if you were on the MacBook the new MacBook Air in Windows the display gets a hundred nits brighter. <laughs> what? I yeah. did see that. Yeah. Uh, which is crazy. It's just a crazy town, right? So norm in Mac OS, it runs at 400 nits and in, in windows, it runs at 500 nits and it's the same. Otherwise, um, it doesn't get like more pixels. Like it just runs brighter. <laughs> it doesn't grow a touch screen. Yeah. <laughs> a touch bar appears when you run at windows. Um, I think half of that is right. A little differentiation from the pro and the air. Sure. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I think another part of that is, that is how you preserve battery life. When I reviewed the Air and I asked Apple about battery life, the first thing they said to me was, "Do not run the brightness. Do not run the display at full brightness." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think if you can just, if you're like, "We'll just keep this thing from totally max brightness," that's how you preserve battery life. Those are the kinds of tricks that I think we're just seeing all over the place now. I think the Windows side, a, might be doing it more aggressively, but it is just wild to me that Windows laptops are suddenly getting better battery life than the Mac. That mm-hmm. was not the case two or three years ago at all. Conspiracy. Yeah. You ready? Vergecast is a place for conspiracy theories. Apple isn't trying very hard with Intel because they're working on the ARM MacBooks, whereas everybody else who's making Windows laptops has to keep trying with Intel, so they're doing a better job optimizing than Apple is because Apple is putting all of its optimization effort into ARM. That sort of like implies like there's one optimization engineer at Apple and he's like, <laughs> they're making her go into like one room instead of another room. Like, that's just how it works. <laughs> like Tim Cook is like, where do I, where do I dole out the optimization dollars? Like, yeah, there's a Mac team. There's, they've got to be working on it. I mean, the, the, the remarkable thing is if you in the abstract think, where is Apple better? Uh, in laptops, it you know it used to be like hardware design. They're like meh, but it's still like they, their laptops still feel more solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's been like screen quality and battery life, and in both of those cases, and trackpads and trackpads. But like in screen quality and battery life, they're like fallen behind a little bit. Um, they're still winning, I think, in overall build quality. Like uh, you know, their designs might not, might not look as sexy, but they like feel a little bit sturdier, especially now that we have a keyboard you can actually trust. <laughs> but yeah, like. They're a half step behind. This is why I titled my review back to base or return to baseline is like they haven't actually hit like we're better than everybody levels yet. Yeah. All right. We've talked about Apple laptops so much. I'm glad we got these reviews out. I'm very interested to see if Apple responds to the Windows stuff. If you haven't been paying attention to the Windows laptops, go read those reviews. Look at that best laptop guide. Look at that XPS 15. It is super interesting. There's a lot going on there that I think if you're more focused on Apple, you might not be seeing, but it is super interesting. But that aside... We got to talk about what's going on with, with the Pixel. Dieter, walk walk us through it. So uh, the information has a, a blockbuster report that came out on May thirteenth, um, pointing out that number one, Mario Caraz, who uh, was previously in charge of Pixel, he quietly left to go like work directly for Sundar earlier this year, and now he's just gone. Uh, Mark Lavoy, who has the the visionary behind the Pixel's camera, has also left. Uh, unclear why he was the best thing about Google's keynote for the Pixel uh, Pixel Four, just incredible by far. Sales are you know not surprisingly not that great. S- one thing I think Dan has some feelings about this is the Pixel Three A didn't exactly like blow the doors off, and there's this just incredibly damning anecdote where the hardware chief Rick Osterloh is uh, talking to his staff uh, reportedly right ahead of the Pixel Four launch. And here, I'll just, I'm just going to quote the information. 
Uh, Oslo informed staff about his own misgivings. He told them he did not agree with some of the decisions made about the phone, according to people who were present at the meeting. In particular, he was disappointed in its battery power. <laughs> weren't we all? Weren't we all? That quote is amazing. I don't know how big companies work. We've only ever worked in our medium-sized company. One just assumes they ran the the specs by the head of the hardware division at some point, right? Like Rick Oslo is the head of Google's hardware division. Yep. Yep. Do they just hand him a finished phone? <laughs> it's unclear. I don't know. It's possible that like there's some sort of like miscommunication or misinterpretation happening about this meeting, although it seems pretty dead ahead. But yeah, you're 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 in charge and this is the most important, most high profile product that that you make. You'd, you'd think that you'd know how big the batteries are. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Pixel 3a was the first fully in-house developed Google phone, right? And the right, they bought 4, HTC. Yep. Right. Pixel 4 would have been the first in-house flagship level developed in-house all Google Google yes. super nuts. You would think that they would be like, like a couple of years ago, they could say, oh, HTC made that decision. LG made that decision. Well, no, but now they, they bought HTC, so they still get to say HTC made that decision. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> the thing that I've been thinking about the whole time is you bought HTC and all their engineers and that whole hardware division. And then you're like, keep doing what you do without noting that HTC was a failure that collapsed, <laughs> leading you to buy them. Like, yeah. you don't let them make the same decisions. Like, that's actually the funniest thing about this is they were, HTC made good phones, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But their decisions about what was important in the phones, uh, historically not rewarded by the market. Right. So you would, you would buy them because they know how to build a phone, but then you would make all different decisions. Also, I'm just going to say this. Google's camera strength, which is the core benefit of the Pixel, uh, in addition to you know getting a clean Google software experience, comes from their software and from like the Pixel sensor, whatever their custom chip is, but mostly their software. And so normally when I assume one is developing a phone, one puts a lot of time into getting the camera right. Samsung does nothing but think about camera hardware and then they like slap the rest of the stuff around it. I don't know. Google can kind of just coast with the Pixel 4. They kind of did. They're just like, hey, the camera is going to use what we've got. It's going to use commodity hardware, which in theory means they have more time to pay attention to the other stuff. Yeah. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre story. I think, Dan, you were in a thread with Walt on Twitter. Walt pointed out that our story said this, but said most stories didn't notice this. Like the Pixel doesn't sell at all. No, nobody buys them. Like, I mean, in, in the grand market, like, you know, a few million people buy them. But when you're talking about a smartphone market, that's like, what, one and a half billion phones? Like, a few million is nothing. And, like, we don't think, as, as product reviewers, we don't really think about sales performance. We think about evaluating product for its own merits. And, like, I, I fully feel that is the way a product should be evaluated. But when you're a person buying a phone, sales performance is, like, a meaningful thing that affects your experience of owning that phone. It means, like... How well is this phone going to be supported? Are there going to be stores to go to that when I break and drop this phone, will, will I be able to get the screen fixed? What cases am I going to have available for it or accessories at launch or six months from launch? Or I like to keep this phone for three years. Two years from now, I need a new case. Am I going to be able to buy one for this phone that only a handful of people bought and wasn't really a popular phone on the market? Trust me, try and find a case for like an HTC phone now. Good luck with that. Like, right? Like, nobody bought them. Nobody made accessories for them. HTC might have paid companies at the launch to like 
spec to come out with like a handful of cases, but like you're not getting Samsung or iPhone levels of uh, accessory support. So like these things don't really affect the evaluation of the device in a bubble as itself, but like in a grand scheme of like buyer's experience of what it's going to be like to live with this phone for the next two to three years, sales performance does have an effect on those things. And it's like, we don't really care whether a phone sells a lot or not. That's not our job or, or our concern, but it does mean that it's going to have these knock-on effects down the line. And what's funny is a company like Google, it's funny because it's Google, but usually you would say, well, it's Google. So, <laughs> right, like there's a one of the biggest, richest companies in the world is behind this product. Mm-hmm. I would expect some level of ongoing commitment to this idea. But because it's Google, you're like, I don't, I don't know if ongoing commitment is really the way this company runs. Yeah, but like they, they say this is supposed to be a real business now. Like that's why Osterlo was put in charge of the hardware business. It's to make it profitable, make it a real competitive hardware business. And so far, I mean, like I don't think they break out the profitability in their reports strategically. But when you look at three million sold, that's not a profitable smartphone business by any long shot. So they're still way far away from that. Yeah, well, the 4A is we think it's it it would be now that it comes out. Dieter, you think it's going to hit? I mean, no. <laughs> I think that if Google is smart, what Google is doing is they're going to release this 4A because it's done. They're just going to throw it out there. And then they're going to put up, uh, I mean, there was a leak of like a billboard, but they'll do like three ads for it. My complaint with Pixel is Google never markets it hard enough, and so it never has a chance. Um, and I actually think if Google's smart, they're not going to put much weight behind the 4A and they're going to save the five for like the grand return of Google into the phone. Like it, it, rumors are pointing to the Pixel 5 maybe using the 765 or I don't know, maybe the 768 instead of the Qualcomm 865 processor. And so it's not going to be like a spec. We're going to take, we're going to be the spec king. But they need to have a couple of things to like really engage like the um, the loyal Android, you know, spec monsters. And then they need like really good battery life and like they need something that feels like really premium build quality if they want to charge more than a thousand bucks. And if they don't, then they need to like reposition what a Pixel is because to date they've been like, oh yeah, we take on the, the Galaxy S line head on. And it's like, if you're going to do that, then do it. And if you're not, then don't. But right now they're trying to like split the difference and it's not working. You know, they need to do is uh, develop a messaging strategy that competes with iMessage so that they can peel off some of those iPhone SE buyers. Look, you're getting, you get tap emoji tap backs in RCS soon. So, all right, we can't, we can't do this. Like We've got message. more to cover on this episode of the broadcast. <laughs> Dan, it was great to have you. My pleasure. Uh, there's more reviews coming. That team is rocking and rolling. So we'll have you back soon. Always. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Casey Newton. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Kohler. I think when we think of design, we're like, beautiful poster, gorgeous graphics. But I also think design has like a place in making sure that people feel the best that they can be. Hi, I'm Lori Delorado. I'm a group creative director at Box Creative. During my nine to five and my five to nine, I've always got good design on the brain. It's metaphorically and physically glowing. It's like the Aurora Borealis. Which is exactly why I was so excited to meet the new Me 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet. On first introduction, 
it legit just waved a hand at me. Not actual waved a hand, but the lid moved up and greeted me for the use. But right now we're in a showroom, so I can't actually use it. Functions like this, a hands-free greeting, and form combine in the Numi to elevate the everyday. It's a sculpture that begs for someone to like rest their body on it and walk away feeling really comfortable. A temperature-controlled bidet, the heated seat, automatic self-cleaning cycles, access to smart home functions thanks to a built-in Alexa, the Numi's got it all for everyone. The bottom has this really beautiful green glow, and it's almost as if they knew that was my special color because if you go into my bathroom at home, the entire bathroom is a mint green. It's like the new me knew that I was showing up. And what's really cool about this is that there is this like circular sphere metal piece that like allows for you to change the color on the bottom. So if I'm not in my mint green era, which I'm often am, I can be in another era, my like calming blue, my like rosy pink, like whatever I need to feel. It's, it's like the Sistine Chapel of toilets. Experience a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with the Numi 2.0. Learn more at Kohler.com. Support for the podcast comes from Hims. Look, we all need help, but for some of us guys, it can be a real challenge to be so vulnerable. There are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash verge. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash verge for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash verge. Prescription to require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Casey Newton, welcome to the Vergecast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's it's good to have you back. It's been a minute. So I was realizing that Facebook announced a Supreme Court for speech across the world. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. like I like read a headline. I was like, oh, this happened. And we like moved on very quickly. Uh, that's a big deal. You've been covering it very deeply. I just wanted to get into it with you. Tell us about the Facebook Oversight Board, what they've announced, who's on it, and sort of the, the early reaction to it. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's a big story. Um, And so a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg went on the Ezra Klein show, actually another Vox Media podcast, and proposed the idea that Facebook have a Supreme Court for content moderation. And the reason is that because he has total control over the company, any decision that Facebook makes about what should stay up on the platform or what should come down ultimately rolls up to him. And a lot of people think that Zuckerberg shouldn't have that much power over speech, particularly given how large Facebook is and how much political discourse happens on Facebook. Uh, And Zuckerberg agreed with them and wanted to create an institution that could sort of take over that job. So they spent a couple of years designing a system. It's called the Oversight Board. Facebook gave them $130 million and 
and they appointed the first 20 members to it, and it's about to get up and running. And to start with, they're only going to hear one kind of decision, which is cases in which somebody said something that Facebook removed. If your thing was removed, you will be able to appeal and the board will then hear it. The goal is over time, they will hear other kinds of cases such as maybe a bad thing is on Facebook and you think it should be taken down and it isn't taken down and then you appeal. But we're a long way away from that. So that's kind of the basic shape of it. And that's how it's going to get started. Disclosure, my wife works for Oculus, which is a division of Facebook. Why is that the first thing? Because uh, we also saw a story from uh, April Laser over at NBC News about how Google seems to be overreacting to um, conservative criticism and maybe has dialed back its diversity initiatives. And starting with, oh, your stuff got taken down or censored, so we're going to let you appeal it, feels to me like it's in that same zone. Yes. Um, I mean, something that is very true of this whole project is Zuckerberg wants it to support free speech. And he, when they, when they went out looking for board members, the principle that they asked them to commit to was the principle of free expression. And so they went out and they, they found people who believed that you could argue that it is also smart politically to uh, do this in a way where the, the main effect initially is to permit more speech rather rather than restrict it. But I'm laughing because today I got an email from some people that were hosting a conservative roundtable where uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, a conservative Republican, was going to complain about Facebook setting up a censorship board. So even though literally the only thing that they're going to do now is permit more speech, the Republicans are already saying this is a a shadowy uh, censorship board. So to the extent that Facebook was trying to do something politically savvy here. It just shows once again why that doesn't work because all these conversations are held in bad faith. Yeah, I mean, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Like if it's Mark Zuckerberg alone in his like speech chamber or whatever darkened room that he makes moderation decisions in and he's just throwing darts at a yes, no board. He's still just the all powerful ruler of speech on the platform. If he spends $130 million to assemble a lineup of notable academics, the ex-prime minister of Denmark is on this board from around the world and try to do it as – there's like a word I'm looking for – in as grandiose a way as possible. He's still kind of damned because now he's got the Illuminati working for Facebook. And that is just like I don't know how you – like the Republican response to this, the Josh Hawley, the Marsha Blackburn, uh, Brennan Carr, who is an FCC commissioner, very much in the Ajit Pai mold. He went off on a long tweet storm about how all these people are liberals who hate Trump. And do you want people who hate Trump controlling Facebook? It's like, God, like, what is the other choice? Well, exactly. And so, you know, I've talked with folks uh, at Facebook about how, how they think this is going to work. And here's what they think is going to happen. Uh, the board is going to start making some decisions that Facebook disagrees with. And Facebook will then put out a statement saying, we very strongly disagree with what the board said here, but we are honor bound to, you know, uphold their their judgment. And that will shift the entire conversation to the makeup of the oversight board. The oversight board is too liberal, it's conservative, right? And so they're going to try to shift that whole conversation onto this other institution. Uh, you know, will it work? You know, it's, it's yet to be seen, but that is the idea. Tell me how the oversight board is actually independent, because they've been saying this a lot. And my first threshold question is, is that is that true? Like, if the oversight board makes a decision that Mark Zuckerberg disagrees with, what actually holds him 
to complying with it? Nothing. Uh, but, <laughs> so just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the I, I will never get over the Game of Thrones scene where like uh, Ned Stark is like, well, you know, technically I'm supposed to be the king now. And Cersei Lannister says, oh, why? Because you have a piece of paper. And then, you know, the guards arrest him and cut his head off. Right. Like a lot of our constitution works the same way. And we're seeing how well that holds up. Right. There are just a lot of norms that go into any democratic institution building. And the hope is that, you know, they will be upheld by Facebook the same way that, you know, Congress used to uphold ours so the goal here is the board is constituted it's operating they put up the new york times op-ed that's like who decides what goes on facebook we do which then they uh they walked that headline back i don't know if you saw that <laughs> yeah they, <did>. <laughs> they, <laughs> and like, they also probably didn't write it by the way yeah it's true but it was still it was more true before they walked it back because yeah theoretically they're the ones who decide the rules of, of facebook they're in existence when are they going to issue their first opinion do you think that we don't know um th- what they've said is they plan to get the board up and running later this year um the board has had a, a couple delays not like super long delays but a few months here a few months there they were initially planning to announce the board in december and it just took longer than they thought and then there was the global pandemic so everything is running a little bit behind schedule but the hope is that they'll start hearing cases later this year so they'll start hearing cases they'll make some decisions if they make a decision that Facebook itself doesn't agree with, the plan is we put out a press release saying, don't blame us, blame this board. Presumably the, the ex-prime minister of Denmark is used to public criticism at this scale. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, that's the one that gets me. Like, it's just, that's who they got. They went out and got people of that class and caliber to make these decisions at this scale. Do their decisions have precedent? Yes. So this was controversial. There was a lot of discussion about whether they, there should be precedents. And the ultimate decision was that, yes, they should. So uh, the hope is that there will be something akin to case law here where the panels of uh, judges will make uh, to will write opinions that will then be published that we can review that then serve as precedents. Um, and I think that's really important. Something that I write about a lot, often in the context of YouTube, just as much as with Facebook, is that there is no justice system on these platforms. If you make your livelihood on YouTube or on Facebook or Instagram, and your account gets canceled, whether for a good reason or for a bad one, you have real no real means of recourse, right? Because the company says, well, you violated our terms of service. Here's an automated notice. You can file an automated appeal. And like that is th- just the limit of it. But a world where a judge could theoretically hear your case and will decide one way or another and write an opinion that then sets a precedent, it begins to to create something like a justice system. And if we're going to live in a world where these companies are not uh, dismantled or broken up and they continue to grow in power, as we are seeing them do during the pandemic, then you want there to be a justice system. Do you think that the existence of a Facebook justice system and their precedents around speech will just be adopted widely by other platforms? Like if I'm running a smaller platform, uh, TikTok, right? It's kind of easy for me to say, well, we're just going to do whatever Facebook does. I doubt that TikTok in its way will actually do that. But any other smaller social platform, you just get to draft off their expense and their work. And you're like, we're just following the Facebook rules. Yes. So the oversight board 
board was explicitly designed so that other companies would eventually be able to join it and to have their own cases heard by it. Uh, I think Facebook would love that because it would increase the legitimacy of the board um, and, and sort of give it more momentum. I very much believe that Zuckerberg is ahead of the curve here. I don't understand how 10 years from now, YouTube doesn't have something similar. Yeah. Um, and, and not to get too dark, but think about the number of death threats that YouTube executives face. Think about the fact that there was already been a shooting inside YouTube headquarters, right? Um, obviously, that's horrible and completely unjustified. But those uh, those death threats are the actions of people who feel like they have no other recourse because there is no system of justice, right? It's you know it's the old protesters saying no justice, no peace. So while obviously again, and I just want to you know say again that I abhor that, and that is the absolute wrong way to achieve any sort of change in this world. But I also don't know how you're going to see that diminish at any time over the next five years when YouTube is only going to get more powerful. Do you think YouTube just gloms onto this? I'm leading you to a, a very dystopian idea, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you think YouTube sets up its own independent board or this board becomes more powerful. Yeah. So the trade-off here is, well, do we want there to be one speech board for the internet? Yeah. Um, That's the dark idea, right? Like, yeah, that's literally the globalist conspiracy Yes. That there is one standard of speech for the entire world in every platform. And because it's cheaper to use Facebooks, you yeah. just use it instead of making your own. Yes. Uh, and again, like my, my bias is toward competition, right? I like there to be different systems where people can set different standards. So, for example, I think it's, uh, it, you know, it was great when people could post porn on Tumblr. And it's like great today that people can post porn on Twitter. Like people want to exercise their First Amendment rights and, you know, have some fun on the Internet and not have to observe the Facebook community standards. Uh, like it, it's a good thing. Like we have a freer and more open Internet. There are also probably better examples than porn of the things that we benefit <laughs> from, uh, you know, fr from having a free and open Internet. But, um, you know, there are, uh, yeah, just sort of a lot of benefits that come from competition. So, you know, maybe the best solution isn't that we all go to the one true oversight board, but that each of these companies sets up different kinds of, of justice systems. And if I were working at one of these companies, I would be thinking about it. Doesn't that quickly lead to the notion that these are just states, right? If, yes. If you want to live under the United States' policies around free speech, you can live in the United States. If you want to live in Germany, where talking about Nazis is illegal. You can move to Germany and talking about Nazis will be like, those are choices. Citizens somewhat get to yeah. make. Obviously mobility is not quite that easy, but on the internet it is yeah. right. And you can just, you, you can say, I want to live under the Reddit system of moderation, which seems to be going quite well, or I want to live under this global speech board at Facebook. Those are big decisions that you can just make, but they're, they are state level kinds of decisions. Yeah, I mean, 100%, you know, like which institutions have held up better in the past three years, uh, federal agencies or Facebook and YouTube? You know, I think increasingly people are turning to these in part because we live so much of our lives online and in part because weirdly, these companies are more responsive than our own government is, you know, to our, our demands for redress. Um, and so we wind up treating them as states and then they keep growing in size and power until they sort of resemble states. And that just becomes like a kind of virtuous cycle for them. Does this mean that there should be free and fair and open elections for people on the uh, the speech board? 
I think it's a it's a reasonable question to ask, right? Like once you've set up a foundation for justice, a great question to ask is like, well, what would be more equitable and, and what would be more just? You know, at the same time, the question of what kind of justice system do you get when judges are elected versus what kind of justice system do you get when they are appointed is very complicated, right? Um, there are a lot of messy trade-offs involved in that. What, where do you think that the line between Facebook moderation policies and Facebook's disinformation policy is right. I'm thinking about the pandemic video. Like it was just very easy. We were just, you and I just interviewed Alex Tamos about this stuff. It was very easy for the platforms to say, there are things that are true about the coronavirus and there are things that are false. And now we have some clarity. There's no murky gray area. We, we're just going to make decisions in a video like the pandemic conspiracy video. They're very quick to just say, this goes away. Is that something that's to be appealed to this board? Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see a future in which the whoever initially posted the pandemic video on Facebook will appeal. And then maybe the 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 oversight board will have something to say about it. A, a very weird and kind of nerdy thing about the oversight board is thinking about on what basis they're going to make their decisions. If you are a U.S. judge, you're making your decision based on hundreds of years of case law and the Constitution. If you're uh, an oversight board member at Facebook, you have the Facebook community standards, you know, which change almost every day and certainly <laughs> every week, at least in some way, right? Um, but then it also seems like there's going to be the expectation that they go beyond the community standards and they sort of apply some layer of like, well, here's what would be right, you know, based on this principle of free expression. So that all gets really uh, interesting to me. And I'm not sure how all of those questions are going to be resolved. So I want to bring up, I mean, obviously you have covered the lives of the actual moderators at Facebook in great detail. Facebook actually this week, uh, a settlement was announced. They're going to pay $52 million in settlement to moderators who develop PTSD on the job. Congrats to you. I think your reporting was a big part of shedding light on all of this. Facebook also announced it's using AI to, to fight COVID-19 misinformation. They're, they're announcing an AI challenge to detect hateful memes. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of different moving parts, right? You've still got human moderators who have to be the kind of the final barrier. There's a huge cost to those moderators. There's an increase in the usage of AI, which has always seemed like the goal for everyone across every platform to make AI just do it. And that now this very analog group of judges who are going to issue precedent when they issue their decisions, do that, does that become part of the community guidelines? And then how do you write that into the AI? I have a lot of questions for you, Casey. <laughs> I mean, that, that is such a great question. And, you know, I, I should say, like, I'm just in the position of having talked to the people who are building this stuff. And a lot of them come from backgrounds in like state building and, uh, you know, free expression. Like Facebook got these people out of the academic world. Um, this is not just sort of the prototypical bunch of Silicon Valley bros trying to build a, a justice system from scratch. Um, so like, I, I believe in them and in their sincerity. And when I met with them last year, all we talked about was the complexity of doing all of this. I mean, like exactly that thing that you described of like, okay, there's a decision. Now what? Um, they're still working through that. I suspect that's one reason why they're not going to hear their first cases until the end of the year. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned during my content moderation reporting was how weird and nuanced these decisions get, how quickly they have to change as human language and norms and behaviors change. And so 
them, like the oversight board, writing an opinion and translating that into policy and then educating 30,000 moderators around the world on how to enforce it, you know, it, it's just enormously challenging, which is, of course, why I always go back to like, why are these companies so big? Uh, it, like, it really seems like it, the, the origin of so many problems for them. It really, truly the scale of them seems like, I, just, I don't know how you would manage this. Like the, the thing I've taken away from a lot of your moderator reporting is every day there's a new deck with new rules and examples and everybody has to learn them on the fly. And I don't know, like I went to law school and law school was, we're going to read one decision about when it's a tort. If a, I will never forget this case. There's a guy he set up, he thought someone was trespassing this barn and he set up a gun to shoot somebody who broke into his barn. And they're like, that was just a day of, is this guy guilty of murder? Because he didn't know someone was coming in, but he didn't want... That's a day of every law student in the country has long philosophical discussions about yeah. this very dumb, very obvious seeming thing that happened. I don't know how moderators do that. I don't know how a robot does that. All you're doing is interpreting a decision to, to guide future actions. And now you've set up the same thing at massive scale for moderators who don't make a lot of money across you know however many countries Facebook is in. I mean, your headline is Facebook's oversight board can be overwhelmed by the challenge. And it just seems like, yeah, maybe this would be better if it was more like Reddit and it was just lots of different groups, one overarching set of rules, but they federated it into smaller communities that can aggressively and rigorously police themselves. But that doesn't seem like what anybody wants. I think some people do want it. And it's also how we have just always solved this problem as human beings, right? Um, like, yes, on one hand, we have organized ourselves into larger and larger groups over history. Like, um, uh, you've all Noah Harari's book sapiens is all about how like, that's like why he thinks human beings were successful is because we're good at organizing into ever larger groups. But at the same time, like we have always set different norms and rules for the different communities that we're in, right? Even within individuals, we have different norms in the workplace and at home and, you know, on our improv teams or whatever. So, um, the way that that works is we just set different rules and standards for all those groups. And that tends to work better because small groups can actually enforce those boundaries. And um, to the extent that people's norms evolve, they're evolving together with a group that you're exposed to a lot and, and have something in common with. So, you know, I've talked to really smart people in Silicon Valley who think that the solution to moderation on Facebook actually just kind of looks like a bunch of sliders of like how much, uh, you know, are, do you want to see nudity in your feed or not? Do you want to see cursing in your feed or not? Do you want to see politics in your feed or not? And just sort of let people decide um, and, you know, I can actually see a world where that manages to satisfy a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. So, you know, we'll see if they move more in that direction over time. Yeah. But then we get to have a huge debate about the defaults of the sliders. I can, uh, I can yes. find the drama for you in almost any situation. <laughs> All right, Casey, what happens next with the oversight board? What happens next on, on sort of the Facebook story? So um, the oversight board is still has 20 more members to appoint. They have to start hearing cases and there are a million little details to work out, uh, some of which you've sort of brought up um, in this conversation. I think the, the big story to watch Facebook right now is um, it's uh, doing an enormous amount of do-gooding. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, helping to 
test people for their COVID symptoms uh, with a partnership through Carnegie Mellon. It's uh, providing heat maps to show the degree to which people are abiding by shelter-in-place orders. It's giving away a lot of money. It's releasing new products to help us feel closer together. Um, but it's also just being insanely opportunistic, right? Like this is the once-in-a-generation chance that Mark Zuckerberg has to prove to you that the world is better because Facebook is as big as it is. And the assumption uh, baked in there is it will be even. It can do even more good if it's even bigger. And so uh, I'm actually really excited by a lot of the things that Facebook is doing. But it's also just undeniable that it is probably going to come out on the other side of this pandemic way more powerful than it was going into it. Just as Apple is, just as Amazon is, right? Just as Google is. And so to me, that's the real story. It's like, yes, let's keep cheering them on as they do things that are like pro-social and good for the world. But let's also acknowledge the trade-offs that come with just having these absolutely giant, very powerful companies. It's funny because like the the companies that are organized against it, most of all are the telcos. Right. Right. It's like old media companies that are falling apart and then like Verizon. And it's like, well, which side of this debate do I want to be on? Well, I mean, that's just it, right? And it's and I'm going to be honest with you, it's Verizon. Let's go 90, everybody. <laughs> wow. What were you saying, Casey? Well, I mean, yeah, it's really hard to to feel like you you would rather root for just these other giants, right? I would just rather root for a more competitive uh, democracy where companies, you know, rise and fall and don't just capture the regulatory state and all that. But that's a long term project. Well, when I build my nation state, Casey, I will have you on as our first advisor. Oh, I would love to live in Eli world. Also, the former prime minister of Denmark. We got to get her. I'm, obs- I'm I'm just obsessed with this idea that. She's going to make Facebook speech decisions. All right, Casey, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com, the one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started. Julia Alexander, welcome to The Vergecast. Thank you. You are you went home for the pandemic. Yeah, I'm Canadian and I have Canadian healthcare insurance, so I I booked it out of New York City, which in some ways makes me, I think, a villain based on Twitter. I think yeah, that's I'm, fine. Yeah, there is a lot of escape from New York in general, I believe. Okay, well, you're we we can see you. You're in Canada. Yeah, how's Canada? Canada's doing fine. Yeah, I, can't, I think so. I haven't left the house. I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, except to go to Best Buy to get a microphone. That's All right. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Well, you're here now. There's been a lot. It's been a minute since you've been on the show. I, I would say the landscape of the streaming wars has changed dramatically since last time you were on. Mm-hmm. I got. I, we just got to start with Quibi. We, we, I can't not start with Quibi. <sighs> Katzenberg gave this insane interview to the New York Times where he said, everything that's gone wrong with Quibi, I, I blame on the coronavirus. Which, like, everything. <laughs> does it? But then he, at the end, he goes, but we own it, which is 
Those ideas are very different. <laughs> Tell me what's going on with our favorite rotating streaming service. By the way, disclosure, uh, there's a Vox show and a Polygon show. They've talked to us about a show, but as you know, we disclose things all the time. It has no bearing on what happens. <laughs> so that's your disclosure. But Qu Julia, tell us what's going on. It's been really funny to watch Quibi because they're clearly doing some kind of press tour. Like Meg Whitman, who's the CEO, is out talking to like CNN and Deadline about um, what's going on with the app. And it's so funny because they're such different personalities. So Meg is like, no, our launch was great. Like we're doing pretty well. And Jeffrey's like, it's chaos. <laughs> like we've got <laughs> no one watching our shows. He literally, in that interview, joked about how no one's watching the Daily Essentials, which are kind of like the daily programming Quibi has. He just went, I guess they're not that essential. And wow. it's like, you paid a lot of money to people to make these shows. Um, I mean, Quibi, so his whole point about the pandemic was that Quibi is designed to be watched on the go, right? The whole thing is like, you're waiting in line for coffee, and then you open up Quibi. Um, and now nobody can go out. And so therefore, he thinks that's why they're not watching their shows. Um, the pe reason people are not watching the shows is because Quibi is not necessary and it's not interesting. Like, and it's not entertaining. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. I mean, point blank, you can't offer people what Netflix can, which is like a, a library of content that people want to tune into anyways. Um, and the originals that you do have are like not super great. No one's really talking about them other than to say they suck. Uh, so it's hard to get people to open up the app and spend time there when they can just open up TikTok or YouTube or Netflix and get the same thing, but they know they're going to be entertained. Do you think the difference between the way that they're talking is that Meg Whitman is trying to save the business and Jeffrey Katzenberg is trying to save face? I feel like Meg Whitman is a, uh, I don't use the word proper, but like she's a CEO who's been trained to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's savvy. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, I mean, is a brilliant man. Like he's his time at Disney is speaks to that. Uh, but I think he just has always kind of been this eccentric kind of creative. Uh, and so he can go out and be like, oh, it, the coronavirus pandemic is the reason our app is not doing well, because he has Meg Whitman who can go like, no, it's fine. We have a plan in place to make sure that we continue to grow. Which is not a good plan, but this interview, if you haven't read it, just go read it. It is bonkers. He said something along the lines of now that hundreds of people are in the app, we see that some decisions we have to rethink. The two that come to mind are one, it is impossible to share anything from Quibi on. You can't screenshot it. You can't capture it. You've wrote about this. Um, like the most viral Quibi thing was like literally somebody with a phone shooting another phone. It makes no sense. So they're going to rethink that. And then you can't get it on TV. And they said, soon you'll be able to send it to TV somehow, although I'm still unclear on exactly how that works. Those seem like very obvious decisions that they should have thought about at the beginning. How close are they to actually changing that now? So, I mean, the, on the second point, which is the casting, which to your point entirely, I've read like three different Meg interviews this week and they keep saying you can cast it with your iPhone to your TV, but no one explains how they're, <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> uh, I mean, like for me, I don't, I'm not someone who's like, uh, who thinks about it. So I was confused. On, I thought the only way you could do that was with an Apple TV and that's nowhere in any of these interviews. So it's all very confusing, but they're closer to being able to roll that out because they've been working on it since before launch. Like, they kind of were aware people want to watch things on their TV. Um, I think the most striking point is that Jeffrey Katzenberg straight up was like, we didn't know people would want to share this content. 
And it's like, yeah. <laughs> this is the issue. It's like the people in charge have absolutely a fundamental misunderstanding of their core concept of what this is. Like how people use their phones, how people watch things, um, and how they interact with kind of that in between. And no one at the top is thinking about this, or at least listening to people who might be bringing this up in the rooms uh, and going like, hey, man, we should be able to like send that screenshot or like share to TikTok where things are going to become where the audience is the exactly. cheapest marketing in human history yeah. is earned social media. And they were like, what if we spend $500 million on Super Bowl ads instead? And it just doesn't, that is very confusing to me. I, the one thing I will say about the, when you're saying it's not necessary, it's, and you've said this, uh, I want to talk about this more directly, but it is very much cable TV castoffs, and it is so loud Every Quibi show is like basic cable personality screaming at you. Yes. And that's like not what you want from your phone. But you were saying there's like a business reason for why so much of the content looks like that. Right. Uh, <laughs> so there's this moment with Quibi where Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman are like, we have to have content and we're going to do the Apple play, which is we're going to just do original content. We won't have any yeah. licensed whatsoever, um, which is what Apple did with Apple TV plus. And, they the way they did it was they went to studios and said we are looking to buy up some projects we if you want to partner with us we're going to figure it out so what the networks tv networks and what the film studios did was look through their garbage bin on their in their basements that they were like we're <laughs> never going to make money on this it's not going to make it through pilot season it's not something we can order to series uh, and it's not going to be something we play in movies movie theaters and they went sure <laughs> you can have this and we're going to oversell it because you need you need content and we have content to just give away. Um, so it worked out well for like a bunch of the studios involved. <laughs> like they were like, Get, cool, take this. We're going to partner to we're going to invest a little bit in your company in part because the licensing is so strange. Like the, the, they give the shows and the movies to Quibi. And then after two years, the rights revert back to the studios. So hypothetically, if a show did take off, they could be like, great, we're going to take it back in two years. Uh, and now there's like a fan base and we can roll it out. So it worked out really well for them. The issue really is just that Quibi does not f fulfill any need in the market at all. There's no need for it whatsoever. And if you can't fulfill the need, then you've got to get people at least something interesting that pulls them in a little bit. At least you get their curiosity and their attention and they don't even manage to do that well. Like it's just, yeah. it, so there's nothing in the kind of conversation that goes, makes you go, I have to watch this Quibi thing like at all. Is that neat? I mean, let's grant Katzenberg his everything wrong is because of the virus. <laughs> Does that need exist if people are still commuting? Do you think, do you think this is all different if everyone wasn't at home? I, so the way I think about it is when I am on the subway or if I'm waiting for coffee, I'm not paying attention to what I'm watching. I just want something to do with my time. Uh, so I think of TikTok and Twitter a lot because and Instagram because you're scrolling, like you're just kind of constantly active and you're, you're it distracts you for a little bit. Um, but it's not like you have to be super engaged with what you're watching. And with Quibi, it's like they're asking you to spend four or five, six minutes uh, actually paying attention to something and. That you, it's just, I think about myself in New York where it is a commuter heavy city. And that's the other thing about his thing is like the pitch is that the idea is when you're commuting to work, you'll do this. Not many people are commuting on the subway. In the scheme, grand scheme of things of the country, are commuting via subway. A lot of people are driving uh, and they're not watching. <laughs> I hope they're not watching <laughs> while driving. Uh, when you're on the subway, you're like, like packed like sardines. You can't even hold your phone uh, to like watch it a certain way. 
Um, and so I think the idea is like, do people want something to distract themselves with when they are in these moments of going from A to B? Totally. Do they have something that does that? Yes. They have TikTok and they have all, every other form of social media. <laughs> yeah. So like for me, the the commuting thing is, uh, is that, does that a necessary service? Uh, it is if I've never used a phone before and haven't figured out what I want to do when I'm commuting with my phone. If I'm like, the, I'm like, oh, duh, out of nowhere, I have no memory of anything. What is this magical gadget in my hand? What should I do with it? And there's a video service, then, then I'm like, yep, okay, I, this is necessary. Um, two, uh, and like the quick bites, like fill your in-between time, the whole concept Five minutes is too long. The thing that I keep thinking about is like the, the games that I like to play sometimes when I'm in a meeting where <laughs> like threes and hold down where I, I, it takes literally four seconds. Twitter's kind of the same way, like four seconds and it pauses. If you look up from it or don't interact with it, it stops and then you come back and it's still in the same state with Quibi or anything else that wants to fill that in between time. Instagram stops, Twitter stops game stop like you if you look up and take your attention away from the phone and you come back to your phone it's the same thing with quibi you actually have to like hit pause and i know that seems dumb because hitting pause is really easy but it actually matters a lot because it, it's like 20 percent more immersive than instagram and it requires 20 percent more effort to break that that immersive concentration and that is just a killer when you're trying to compete for the starbucks line when the Starbucks line comes back. That's that's exactly it. I think it's a fundamental, I, I tweeted this the other day, it's like a fundamental misunderstanding of what the, the major function of this app is. Like they have an idea of how people use their phones and the issue is that they have a major misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding of how people actually use their phones. And that's harder to solve than just having bad content. Like that is, it's easy to solve bad content. You can like Netflix kind of figure out a way to do it. For a while, Netflix had really bad originals and then they were just like, oh, we'll, we'll figure out a way to fix it. And they have, Quibi doesn't necessarily just have a content problem. It has like a usage problem um, and a behavioral problem. And I think that's something that takes a lot of time to figure out. All right. Well, we're overdoing it on Quibi. <laughs> the least consequential streaming service I can think of. But it's fascinating. Julie, you weren't here, but we just had Casey on. Casey ended on this note of what this whole industry needs is more competition. There's a part of me that wants Quibi to succeed as like the premium mobile YouTube. Like that's the dream. That was the idea, right? Like Jeffrey Katzenberg is going to compete with YouTube. And he's going to take yeah. attention away from YouTube by paying, by paying big media companies and whoever else and I, I don't know the Anna Kendrick show, which is insane, where she makes friends with her boyfriend sex doll. Like, all right, like all of it's that's true. That's a real Quibi show. <laughs> wow, it's insane. Jeffrey Katzenberg is going to spend that money and he's going to build a competitor to YouTube, right? And then YouTube won't be this like single platform that makes everybody mad all the time because you have competition. Like conceptually, that's great. I hope it works out. I would say the execution has been what you're saying, just a bunch of misunderstandings about how people use phones. We'll see if they can turn around. Last pitch, Quibi should buy Vimeo, the end. Oh, no. Don't, no, no more mergers. I think it's a really fun litmus test to ask people just to name a Quibi show on the top of their <laughs> see head if it's and real. see what they come up with. Yeah, just do like, I, I was joking around in Slack and I was like, if we did quizzes, we should do like the, is this a 30 Rock show? Like fake show on 30 Rock or Quibi series. Yeah, they're real close. <laughs> so let's talk about my other favorite Doom streaming service, uh, HBO Max. You and I are total opposites on this. It's so funny. I think it's going to be successful because it has friends. They're they're rolling forward. I mean, they're 
They are launching it soon. We're going to be covering it in detail. You're going to be covering it in detail. They sent out a press kit, which is the most elaborate press swag kit I've ever received in my life. Yeah. It, w- it weighed like 400 pounds. It came with a Bluetooth speaker. Um, so they're all in. It still seems very confusing. Who's going to get it for free? Where it's going to go? What platforms it's going to be on appears to be an issue of some dispute. What is going on with HBO Max? I, I think that you hit on the core issue that they're facing, which is a branding issue specifically, like which is the AT&T <laughs> uh, <laughs> story. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, the, the core issue is this branding to the point where they're launching in two weeks. And the question they like John Stanky, who is current COO, is about to be the CEO in July. Um, gets the most is like, why did you name it HBO Max? Like, that's still the number one question he gets. Um, and like, they've brought in like teams of executives to explain this decision, which is like not a good sign <laughs> for when you're naming something. They're like, well, we looked at Warner Brothers, but we thought, ah, do people really care about Warner Brothers? Which is not something you should say. Uh, and then they, <laughs> then they were like, you know, and then people really associate HBO with what we're doing. And then the face of HBO Max is Elmo. And it's like, is Elmo the face of HBO? <laughs> like, I, like, there's just so much confusion happening. But I think what HBO Max does have going for it more than anything else is like that they do have originals lined up for launch, which is more than you can say for a lot. Uh, like Peacock had to, which is NBC Universal's. Um, I don't know if you want to do your oh, disclaimer. Crap, <laughs> I'll just do them all. I'll just do them all at once. Dieter's wife works for Oculus, which is a division of Facebook. Yep. Uh, NBC Universal is an investor in Vox Media, which is the parent company of The Verge. We are producing a Netflix show. Vox.com and Polygon have a Quibi show, uh, <laughs> yep. and they have talked to us about one. I don't. I, there might be more, but that's that's enough for now. I think that's. I keep joking that every every story Julia writes will have as much Julia copy as disclosure copy. <laughs> and that's really, that's my goal for the Verge. Continue. I uh, jo- <laughs> jokingly, but not so jokingly said that my dream kind of guest appearance on anything would be Elmo has a late night show now on HBO Max. And I really want to be on Elmo's late <laughs> night show. <laughs> uh, so then we can throw that disclaimer in. But I think the thing about HBO Max, what they have is they have original series, uh, kind of a full slate, which Peacock does not have. Um, because of the coronavirus impacting them a little bit harder than it impacted Warner Media uh, in terms of where they're at in production. Um, so they have originals. They've got a huge slate of movies that they're going to roll out, which is really interesting. They have a social strategy, which is something that the other streamers have not talked about. HBO Max is like very, Warner Media is like very invested in like how you can share what they are giving you. Um, which I think is the most forward-thinking thing a streaming service could do, which is what Netflix is really good at doing. So I think all these things, one, make it like an uh, an appetizing kind of um, streaming service. But two, the fact that they're basically going to roll in everyone who subscribes to HBO and to HBO Max gives them that kind of immediate growth from the start to to roll to kick off the Disney Plus kind of growth where it's like we already are going to have all these people that we're, they're just going to have it from the get-go. Um, and John Stanky said something really interesting yesterday, uh, or, or it might have been today. He said that HBO Max is both the future of kind of H, like the comp- Warner Media streaming and from a linear perspective. Like he was like, there's no difference now. Like HBO Max is our linear plan. It's our streaming what? plan. It's like the plan. What? 
Yeah, I was like thinking about it a lot because it didn't make any sense. But then I was like, <laughs> I, I kind of get what he's saying, which is they're taking these kind of all, all these subscribers to HBO. Um, they're looking at how they're going to cross promote like what they're doing with the original content on their networks like uh, TBS, TNT, um, all the, there. And basically the goal is like just to bring them into HBO Max. Like the, the goal is to just bring them into HBO Max and then Warner Media and AT&T sports divisions and news divisions do their thing. Which I get, like, I, I get what he's saying. And I think the investment is there and the thought is there for HBO Max to, like, succeed. Yeah. I'm I mean, very it, bullish on it. I, I, I know. But that's like, we're supposed to be bullish on things that haven't launched yet. Like, hopefully they, <laughs> hopefully they succeed and there's more competition. And it's like, great, I buy it. You're just describing, like, a bunch of execs in a beautiful AT&T conference room coming up with, like, an org chart plan that looks like it should work, right? Like they're just moving boxes, but the boxes represent like hundreds, if not thousands of employees who all have to like know what is going on, communicate with each other and like not hate each other. This is not stuff that like typically goes well at a media company. <laughs> this is not stuff that typically goes well at giant telecoms, right? Like, I mean, it didn't go well for HBO. It hasn't got, like all of HBO's executives left the first time <laughs> they did this kind of like box exercise, like, I get it. It seems like what they want is I, I keep thinking of the Disney plus app, which literally the only thing we watch in it is both versions of the Lion King. Like that's like the live action. You want my, to my daughter, Max likes the live version. <laughs> no. I have to clarify it's because really upsetting talking about HBO max, my actual human child, Max, uh, only so we argue, I argue with my two year old every day about which version I think to watch. <laughs> and then I lose cause she wants real lines. Anyway, the point of this is, the top level organization of the Disney Plus app appears to be what AT&T wants for HBO. You open it and they show you HBO, HBO, the premium HBO stuff, a bunch of Sesame Street stuff, a bunch of Crunchyroll stuff. The problem is Disney is at least somewhat thematically unified, right? Like it's a bunch of cartoons and superhero movies that are cartoons and star Wars movies that are cartoons and then an entire extended universe of cartoon like things, right? <laughs> like, you know what it is? Like even it's divisions, they're different brands, but they're just little universes for you to, even Pixar in its way. Right. Sesame street and Westworld and Crunchyroll do not have any thematic unity whatsoever. <laughs> Like, those are just different things. I can make a strong case that Sesame Street and Westworld uh, exist in the same universe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's actually, I would read that. I was just about to say, dude, you're going to put that on the side. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, in what universe, I mean, and so Netflix does this, but they, it's Netflix. Like they, they just have the audience that comes along and they have an algorithm that serves it to you. They do not try to show you a bunch of kid stuff in one column. They're showing you a very personalized version of Netflix for you. It doesn't seem like that's what HBO wants to do. I feel actually like the opposite. They have spoken a lot about the recommendation. I think they are taking from what I can tell. And yeah, we don't know how this is going to go. It could fail. Uh, <laughs> but the way I, they've been talking about it is like using the pillars of IP that they have, which is the Disney play, which is like you open it up and you could go, yeah, Warner Brothers, Crunchyroll, like whatever you want. It's there. But at the same time, it's going to be like extremely based on what you watch, they're going to figure out their recommendation pretty quickly. And the other thing I think they've taken away from Netflix, which is the most interesting, because it's very, very, tr like, network television, is, like, aimed down the middle. 
just aim mm-hmm. for the most and have enough in each pocket. So HBO Max, when they came out, uh, the Warner executives, they were like, we're investing in a bunch of teen content. We want teen audiences. And you just don't, again, it's like you you hear HBO and you're like, really? Like, this is, you guys did Oz. It's like one of your first big shows. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they had this idea where they're like, HBO will be HBO. It's going to exist here because it is just going to be here. But we're going to have the eventually the harry potter section and we're going to have uh like this kind of sci-fi section which warner brothers has we're gonna have our classics we're gonna have our anime and i think it'll just start recommending things to you they're also doing the weird groupings like they're gonna do the like if because you like this here's like an actual grouping you open it up and there's like a bunch of things it almost feels like a different section so i think they're trying to figure out how to personalize owning the amount of stuff they own because they have so warner media has so much content we'll see i'm excited for it only because it it's i mean at&t is like literally the death star like i'm excited excited for for them to like fire the cannon and just like see what happens <laughs> like it's this is the bet that at&t is making this is why john stanky is going to be the ceo because he has some sort of understanding of this business like they put him in charge of it for 20 minutes <laughs> so i think that he can say well i used to be in charge of warner media i understand it this is a, a transformational moment for one of the biggest and most important companies like in the business and i i still kind of don't get it but i'm very excited to, to see it like we're at that moment just before they launch the app where all we can yeah. do is talk about what they've talked about and they can only speak in corporate buzzwords like you read any stanky interview, you're like, what are you saying? Like, well, I just think like uh, the advantage that it, specifically HBO Max to an extent Peacock, but I think NBC Universal has like just so many problems lying ahead of them that they don't know what to do with. Um, I think what they have, which is what Netflix had and Hulu had, is like this library of stuff. People are going to sign up for it because they either want HBO and they will just get HBO Max because that's what they're doing um or they want you know access to friends really during this pandemic they like want friends so they'll sign up for this thing and then at&t and comcast have these streaming services that have a ton of content on them when you look at apple tv plus you look at quibi like part of the reason that they seem to be struggling is because they don't have this library of content and no one's looking for new things really like you're looking for a new thing on netflix because you're opening netflix and you're like oh there's a new netflix show i'm just gonna watch it uh but you're not like actively going like oh i wonder what's coming out this week on this service and i'm gonna start looking for it that's what could be an uh, an apple bet on was the idea that there was a need for more content that people would just start subscribing to everything and what at&t and comcast and to, and to an extent disney because they own hulu like hulu was their big bet really it was disney plus and hulu uh they were like no we're just gonna have as much as we possibly can and people will just come and they'll find new stuff there and they'll just start opening it up like you open up netflix like tv guide like that's just what will start happening uh you brought up apple tv plus you've been digging into their numbers a little bit how, how, how's it going over there no bueno. Not great, Bob. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's just not great. I, I think there's like the common business thing, right? Is uh, like the business school rule is you don't say a number unless you're sure that by this time next year, you'll at least be at that same number, but, like hopefully a little higher. So like when Disney said 10 million first day, they were like, oh, they're pretty confident that a year from now they'll have more than 10 million subscribers. Um, and now they're about to hit their 2024 goals by like the end of the year. Apple hasn't said anything, and that's not new for Apple. You guys know Apple better than I do. They don't say numbers for a lot of things, but they like anytime it comes up, it's just not even like anything beyond. We're really happy with the engagement, 
And it's like, that. what does that mean? So we're relying, as we do with every streaming service, uh, on third-party kind of look, data looking into it. So all the data that we are kind of seeing is not promising. But then again, I mean, Apple's uh, like this weird position like Amazon is, where they it almost doesn't matter for them. Like, it's a product they can offer people. People use it and they're happy to like go and be at the award shows and have the acclaim. Uh, and it's pocket change for them. Like, it's whatever. It's crazy when they're not growing because they literally give it away free for a year if you buy an Apple product. And their sales, they, they keep selling phones and iPads. So, like, a lot of people are getting a free year of Apple TV and they have the numbers flat. It kind of comes down to like that we are oversaturated and we know this and like it comes down to the Quibi, the whole social media thing, which is like Tiger King, which was Netflix, was like a whatever documentary. But that show just became the meme and they saw a huge increase in traffic. And the thing that I do, I have a Twitter, a tweet that column open and I just have certain words that I use to figure out what people are talking about on TikTok. And they'll be like, oh, I started listening to this TikTok audio, which is taken from like BoJack Horseman, I'm going to watch BoJack. And it's that earned media where Netflix is like, great. <laughs> like that, like cool. And that's just not happening with Apple stuff or could be no one's watching it and then no one's finding it. So now you're in this abyss of just an oversaturated level of content. Um, and that's, that's like not, not great. Yeah. I've definitely noticed the, um, the only way to engage your friends now is to call them on a video chat platform. And all of these conversations have now just, turned into what are you watching because there's nothing else to do it's not like <laughs> where have you gone on vacation like you can't do that like would you go to a cool route nope that's out like it's down to what are you watching and in every show that my friends are, and this is a very limited sample it probably doesn't mean anything but it's always netflix and hulu that that's where the shows live I mean, today I tweeted about like, I really, I have to restart watching NYPD Blue because I'm like in a really old cop phase of my TV <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I just, so I was like, oh, where, where can I go watch this? And it was only Hulu. And I was like, I guess I, like, I'm in Canada, so I'm using weird VPNs, but wow. like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, that's the only place to go watch this thing. And I feel like that's a lot of people where right now you want comfort TV more than anything else. You'll find a new show usually on Netflix because you're opening Netflix. I mean, that's Outer Banks. Everyone watched Outer Banks because Netflix promoted it and you opened it up and you were like, I guess I'll watch this teen show. Um, but otherwise, it's like I'm watching 30 Rock or... Oh, here's my HBO Max idea. The Wire for teens. Think about it. How do I pitch Bob? I feel like that's partially euphoria. <laughs> <laughs> fair. That's actually totally fair. <laughs> All right. One last thing I want to talk about real quickly. Uh, we're way over time, but there's a lot of drama going on with theaters, with release dates around movies. <laughs> My routine for years was on Friday. I would just open up the iTunes app and see what movies were out. Like I wasn't going to the theater anymore. I was just like open on Friday and be like, what movie are we going to watch tonight? Like, what are we going to rent? And then I rent it from Voodoo because the internet. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. But that's not like that cadence has slowed way down. The studios and the theater owners are all in a big fight. What's the status there? Are we, is my dream of day and date release for streaming coming? Cause I really like that to happen. Oh yeah. I was talking to, uh, <laughs> we have a, a Facebook group with like reporters who talk about who'd report on streaming. And we were talking about this. Uh, and it's kind of like the thing that's going to happen. TV, movie theaters are not going to go away. Uh, at, at least right now, movie theaters are not going to go away and studios are not going to give up that relationship because you know, when, when things do return to somewhat normal, 
they're going to make a lot of money on their big movies and they want to make a lot of money on their big movies. But the window will disappear like that window is basically gone. Um, the really funny thing to me is so they're they're fighting. The background story is that uh, all these studios, which now most importantly now have streaming services that they want to promote, are going like, oh, we'll just pull movies that we were going to release theatrically and put them on uh, streaming services or they're going to go through premium video on demand for two weeks and then they're going to go to a service, um, which is what's happening with Scoob, uh, which is a Warner Media Scooby-Doo movie and it'll eventually go to HBO Max. And the theaters are really upset because they're like, hey, man, like we're already dying. Uh, if you could just help us out, that would be super good. <laughs> <laughs> that would be super good. Uh, we'd appreciate it. And the execs are like, but it doesn't make sense for us. Like we lose, we make more money going premium video on demand we can grow our streaming services i mean disney has talked about this for years where alan horn uh who's their chairman was like why would we make a, we sent a movie that's going to make 10 million dollars why would we put that in theaters when we can just put it on a streaming service like and then there's new content uh versus like avengers is going to make two billion dollars yeah that will be in theaters for six months but it's funny to me that the theaters now are threatening to like not carry certain movies. Like AMC said, we're not going to carry Universal movies. And it's like, you are $5 billion in debt and you are absolutely going to carry Jurassic World 3 and the fa ninth Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> uh, and it's like, the idea is like, who are you going to say like, we're not going to carry Warner Brothers movies? Like, no, the future of this industry is now relying reliant on like Christopher Nolan's tenant hitting July 17th. Um, and that's going to basically determine whether or not movie theaters will be like will carry on in the summer. Uh, so it's like the idea that they're fighting with them about this. They want to show they they want to stand up for themselves. And I respect that. And they want to be like, hey, we are not doing super great. We need support. Um, at the same time, I think it's ridiculous to in this day and age with streaming and what's happening in the industry to just go expect the studios to not utilize their own tools. Yeah. You think AMC or Regal gets bought? 100 percent. Uh, I was talking to someone who said it'll just be consolidation again. I mean, so the, the, the reason the theaters are upset is because this happened in 19, between 1999 and 2001. The theatrical landscape in the United States just shifted completely. And it was really devastating. AMC got bought. Regal got bought. And now there's like a few corporations that are buying up a bunch of the movie theater chains. And they're scared. And I get that. And it's like they are there. They know that what's happening right now is an accelerated trend that would have happened five years from now. The pandemic just made it happen right now. And so they're they're putting up this defense where they don't want to be forgotten. And it's like or go under completely. And that's not going to happen. But I do think they have to acknowledge like we are in this weird revolutionary moment uh, and it sucks, but you can work with them and working with them means getting rid of that window. The The interesting party in this is Netflix, because for so long, no one would carry Netflix movies because Netflix was like, we're going to go straight to streaming uh, day one or we're going to do one two week release and then go straight. And now <laughs> that the studios are doing that, Netflix can be like, hey, AMC, carry our movies like there's precedent now for them to argue that. So that will be fun to see if Netflix starts going like we want our movies in theaters uh, and like major chains. But like, who would. Why would I go watch what's it's extraction? Yeah, the, the Chris Hemsworth movie. Like, why on earth would I go watch that movie in a theater? Because uh, Chris Hemsworth deserves to be on a big screen. <laughs> I haven't. I don't. I, I can't even bring myself to watch it on my TV right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, it's a bad movie. Right. Like that's the Netflix isn't their movies are not at that level. Also, Chris Hemsworth is getting more than enough of our money right now. His app just charged people 99 bucks. All right. Now this podcast yeah. is officially too long. Okay. <laughs> now we're just now we're just lobbying our individual complaints about Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Third He's segment, too pretty. Four minutes on Chris Hemsworth. All right, Julia, what happens next? What are the next big dates people should be looking out for? May 27th is HBO Max launches. July 15th is when Peacock launches nationally. It's in a soft launch right now. Uh, And then July 17th, going to the last topic, is when Tenet is supposed to be released. And if that movie comes out, you'll have a summer of movies. And if that movie does not come out, you will not have a summer of movies. Wow. All right. Chris Nolan, all America's hopes right on you, buddy. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much, Julia. We're going to have you back. I mean... It's it, things are heating up, so we'll, we'll have you back quite often. I think. Good to talk to you. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's the Virtuous. We went super long, uh, but I think it was worth it. I think. I mean, I enjoyed it. Dieter, you had a good time. I I did. I need to get off because my USB C HDMI capture card <laughs> is here, and I'm dying to go get it. So I gotta go and and mess with my cameras. But thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back. Our Tuesday interview episode. Big deal. I'm excited about it. I'm, not, I'm just, I'm just, I've been hyping it, I think, for a week now, but I think it's going to be good. We've, we've had a big week of interview episodes coming out. So check out Tuesday. We're going to be teasing it. I'll be a big deal. Back next week with the chat show, another rotating cast of characters from The Verge. Very excited about it. You can subscribe to Dieter's newsletter, processor, theverge.com slash newsletter. You can subscribe to Casey's newsletter, the interface, verge.com slash interface. TC Sodic, our executive editor, does a newsletter of happy things on the internet called Home Screen which is a nice relief in this time. You can check that out too. Julia, where can I find you? On Twitter? Yeah, on Twitter, at LoudmouthJulia. Dieter is at Backlon. I'm at Reckless. See if I can get them all. Casey's at Casey Newton. Dan is at DC Seifert. We'll talk to you soon. That's Virtuous Rock and Roll. I don't know what to say. Paul. We can just keep Paul. saying Paul. Okay. Thank you to Kohler for supporting this episode. Who says smart things can't also be beautiful things? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet ever. Equipped with fully customizable bidet, heated seats, automatic cleaning cycles, and on-demand smart home functions thanks to its built-in Alexa. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. Customize the lights to match your interior or your mood and enjoy an immersive, intuitive experience of personalized luxury and cleanliness. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.